This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. This week marks the release of the new A24 film Minari, which tells the story of a Korean family that moves to Arkansas in the 1980s in their struggle and adaptation to fit in with the American dream. The release also coincides with Lunar New Year, a celebration of the new year that aligns with the moon cycles and is celebrated in many parts of Asia. In honor of Minari and Lunar New Year, today's show is going to be all about Asian American cinema. I have Rachel Ho, owner of the film review website, rachelkh.com, joining me today on this adventure. Rachel previously guested on episode 129, Make Remake Rebecca, and provided her favorite film of the year for our best films of 2020 episode last week. So welcome, Rachel, and Kung Hei Fat Choi. Thank you very much. Oh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so happy new year, and, uh, and thank you so much for joining me today. I, I mentioned off the top that you were a guest on the best films of 2020 episode, where you sent in a voicemail about Sound of Metal being your favorite movie of last year. But on your site, you also have a full article about your own top 10 with some excellent picks. And uh, I even owe you for, for turning me on to The Kid Detective. That's a great movie. I was so happy when I discovered that one. It was through another film podcast, actually, that I heard it, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And then I kind of watch it. Turns out it's amazing. And turns out it's a Canadian movie, which is even more of a plus, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Re- really good one. Uh, and so if people haven't checked that one out yet, people definitely should. Uh, but yeah, as we uh, as we get into the show, I'd love to hear a bit more about your background. You, you told me that your family's from Hong Kong. Can you maybe talk about the kind of Chinese films that you grew up with? Sure, yeah. My parents are from Hong Kong. They immigrated over to Canada back uh, in the late 70s, early 80s for university. Um, And then they eventually moved to Toronto, where my brother and I were born. And growing up, we grew up in a pretty predominantly white neighborhood. Um, So I didn't have that many Chinese friends or anything like that. But through my family, we would watch a lot of Hong Kong gangster movies, basically. There's a big genre in the 70s in Hong Kong of gangster police movies and they would usually be on these laser disc um, and probably a bootleg version as well i won't lie but um yeah th- i grew up watching those of chinese movies in terms of movies like hollywood movies it was slim pickings i mean i didn't watch joy luck club until it was probably in university actually like well well after it was released and i think for me like the only faces i saw that were Asian that you know kind of somewhat resembled me would have been um, Ming Na Wen in, in Street Fighter, and she played Chun Li, which is probably the greatest video game character. Just saying it. Um, and was it Michelle Yeoh in uh, in in a James Bond movie? And then of course George George Takei in in Star Trek. But yeah, it was swim pickings growing up. Like we didn't have very much, and if I did watch a Chinese movie. Um, it was from Hong Kong and again, usually a bootleg film because they didn't, oh, at Pacific Mall, I don't know if people who, who your listeners are where they're from, but there's a mall in, in Markham, Ontario called Pacific Mall and they used to have a movie theater there a long time ago um, and they would show films from Hong Kong. So that was probably my only like in to those kinds of movies, but usually at like my uncle's house or something like that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I've been to Pacific Mall a few times. Uh, back when I was in college, we would take a trip out to there uh, in the beginning of the year. And so I usually load up on on the bootleg movies where yeah. <laughs> it was sold very out in the open. But at the same time, there was also a little bit of a sense of like, if the police are coming, we need to shut down right away. <laughs> yeah, they, they used to have like raids, but it would be somebody from the police department would tip off one of the shopkeepers in Pacific and then 
it was a whole thing. I remember being there once when it actually happened. It was kind of scary. But they would just inform everybody, and then all the stores all of a sudden were just closed for, for the day. Yeah. Um, just very randomly <laughs> on a random Saturday, they would be closed, and the police would come by, and everybody would close. So then it would just go back to business as normal. But that was very I mean, it still is. You can go to Pacific Mall. You can go to First Markham Place. Um, it's not as common as it used to be. Cause I think most people, obviously, if you're going to go down the pirated route, you're probably going to download online. Um, but you can still find physical copies of, especially movies from like Hong Kong. Uh, I'm sure there's movies from China, uh, Taiwan, Korea, Japan. You can find those there because those, those aren't as easy to get, I would say, online. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now, one thing to note before we get into this topic is we're mostly looking at East Asian films in representation there. Mm -hmm. And this is because we don't want to spread the topic too thin. It potentially gives me an opportunity to do some more episodes like this later in the future with other guests. Uh, Now, I think before we talk about the history of Asian American cinema, we need to look at some recent events. The biggest one being Parasite, a film created and starring all Koreans in Korea, uh, won Best Picture at the Oscars last year. Uh, the first time a non-English language film won the top prize. And it seems like just about every Asian community viewed this as a gigantic win for themselves, not just Korea. And the excitement was very palpable. What was your reaction to the win? It was very surreal, I have to say. I remember when, um, like, leading up to the, that award show, and just thinking, that's cool. Like, it seems a lot of people are really into Parasite. Um, the director, Bong Joon-ho, I had seen a couple of his other movies, like Snowpiercer. I think that was probably his most popular one for Hollywood, uh, up until Parasite, obviously. And I remember thinking, there's no way he wins. Like, I, I don't know. I just kind of had that thought. I go, there's no way that Parasite's going to win. They're not going to nominate an Asian movie, let alone a Kore- like a like a purely Korean movie. Like, it's actually a Korean film. It's not an American movie. Um, and especially with the kind of, I guess, weird political thing they have with political it's not really political but um the 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 politics within the award show of if it's going to win best foreign language then it's not going to win best picture like that that's kind of and i think uh, kind of to bring it to today and in this um this upcoming uh award show a lot of people are talking about soul whether or not is that going to win because it's most likely going to be best animated so does that take also the best picture but Parasite set a good precedent there that you can do both. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other, um, which I think is amazing. And hopefully, I mean, I, I haven't seen Minari yet because it, it hasn't come out as we're recording this. Um, but I know that there was a, a lot of discussion about that as well as what category it should fall into. Yeah. It, it, yeah. You hit on a really good point there because it really does seem that at the Oscars, whether it's animated feature, foreign language film, or now it's international film, uh, documentary feature, things like that, where it's, you know, category specific just for that genre or style of movie, it sort of is like, hey, we gave you your award. That's, you know, your runner up prize basically for the best picture. And, and it definitely yeah. sort of seemed like that leading up. And it's not even with those. I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but I remember when I think George Clooney won for Best Director. And I think in his acceptance speech, he said, well, I'm, I guess I'm not winning for Best Actor then. Like, <laughs> I, he, he knew that you don't, you don't win twice in a night, right? You just you win one. So, mm-hmm. so that was amazing, that parasite of all movies to, to kind of break through that, that, I guess, practice or tradition by the, the voters. It was a movie that wasn't in English. Um, it, it wasn't, um, European, you know, it was, it was Korean and that was amazing to see it on stage. And I know for a lot of my Korean friends watching it, they're saying like, it was really cool to see like 
their language being spoken on stage. Uh, because again, you just, you don't, you grow up a certain way. You don't think that we're going to be there. Like we just kind of, in, in a way you kind of accept it, um, which is kind of sad, I guess, but, um, it's just that history tells you that that's what it's going to be. So I don't know. It was, it was a really cool moment, um, for the Asian community. I think it was a big win for, I think international cinema in general. Like I'm sure people in Bollywood took notice that like, okay, so, you know, one of their movies got in, maybe one of ours can get in too, right? Like it gives a bit of hope that films that people make can get a bit of a wider, wider attention. Cause I know a lot of people after, uh, after the uh, Academy Awards, they went and sought out Parasite and sought out a bunch of other, uh, of, of Bong Joon-ho's um, films as well. And other Korean, I know Korean culture right now is quite like they're kind of the trendy Asian at the moment uh, with like <laughs> K-pop and all that kind of stuff. So Japan was, the they were the trendy agents for a little while, but uh, now it's the Koreans. So it's cool, though. It's it's really neat to see, you know, people expanding their horizons a little bit. And I, I loved what Bong Joon Ho said in his acceptance speech, which was about subtitles. You know, if you can overcome that one inch down on the bottom of the screen, your horizons for the films that you can watch and enjoy have just increased exponentially. Wow! Amazing! Unbelievable! Good. 자막, 서브타이틀의 장벽을 장벽도 아니죠. 한 1인치 정도 되는 그 장벽을 뛰어넘으면 여러분들이 훨씬 더 많은 영화를 즐길 수 있습니다. Once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. I think for me, I almost feel like I didn't understand that it was such like a, a mental block for for basically English speaking film watchers to watch a non-English language film because for me you know when, when Oscar season comes around and I, I try to watch every nominated film usually the the international or the foreign language films are my favorite of the bunch like they're wow, usually right yeah. up there and you know I think when you're when you're super deep in film community uh, there's there's no sort of pretense of like oh you want to recommend some movies here's you know uh, the latest Hollywood film, the latest British film, here's a Korean film, here's an Indian film, and, and you can kind of like commingle all of them and there's and there's no real prejudice against any of it. So I guess for me I was I was just so sort of so shocked at the reception of people being so into it. I'm like, is this really your first time that you're watching a movie that's not in English? Like, what's wrong with you? You have an entire world of cinema. Like, I know for the longest time, especially with the Oscars, uh, Italy and France really dominated yeah. the, the foreign language category and would occasionally get, you know, uh, best acting nominees or, or sometimes squeak into the best picture categories and things like that, where I'm like, have you not seen any of these movies? Or like, <laughs> Japan has a crazy rich history yeah. of, of yeah. cinema that's world-renowned and, you know, that's an episode that I'm going to be doing in a few weeks. And we're going to be talking about Japanese cinema, but like, I was just baffled. I'm like, is it, this is really your first time watching a subtitled film? <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I don't, I don't want to paint the Americans in a certain way, but <laughs> I do think it's more of an American thing. Like I, I, I've never, you know, in Canada, maybe because we, I grew up in a house with another language being spoken other than English, but, and, and like I said, I watched a lot of Hong Kong movies, which did have subtitles at the bottom. So to me, of course, it's not anything new. It's not a big deal. But I even just think across Canada, like because we are, we have to learn French in school. So in your French class, depending on how your teachers did it, it's like you might watch a video that has French subtitles at the bottom or English subtitles at the bottom because it's a French clip or something, you know, something teaching us another language. 
And so I think that that actually makes people a bit more open because if you have only watched English movies your entire life, like for whatever reason, you just, you don't speak another language in your house. Um, you've never just, it's never come across your plate, I guess. Um, maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe it is something that people just say, I, I can't be bought. Like, I don't want to read. Like, I don't yeah. want to read my movie as well. Like if I wanted to read, I've heard that they go, if I wanted to read, I'd, I'd just pick up a book. And I go, well, <laughs> you should pick up a book, but this is different, you know? But it's funny. Cause I think for a lot of people too, if they were like, there was a big joke, um, I think especially in Hollywood back in like the nineties and probably early two thousands about bad dubbing for like, mm martial arts movies and things like that mm-hmm. and that is, I, I know snl and like mad tv they used to use those as like a punchline but it's because i guess they didn't maybe american viewers didn't want to do the subtitle right they pref- i don't think they preferred dubbing but they just thought dubbing is easier because i don't have to actually read i can just listen to whatever and i know the um you know the studio i'm going to butcher the name gilby ghibli uh, like with to- ghibli thank you with like <laughs> Uh, Totoro and things like that like they dub those I mean it's it's animated so it's a little bit different but like they do dub those um and and a lot of Japanese anime gets dubbed and in, instead of using subtitles um but I, I don't know hopefully that's changing it though I hopefully I think Parasite is is going to change that idea and and hopefully get people to to look at cinema because you're right Japan in particular has a very rich history of of film um you know they have one of the greatest filmmakers is from Japan so it's and and then the Italian and, and French and Spanish, you know, and I I love Scandinavian movies personally. Like I, I find them really interesting. Like they have a interesting beat to them. Um so hopefully it, it gives people more more a bit of a more open a bit of a open mind to to watching movies with subtitles in them. Um and realizing that dubbing is very bad and they probably thought those movies were just bad, but really it's just the dubbing that was bad. <laughs> Yeah. And and I also feel like maybe some of those those dubbed films it, there was just such an influx of like uh of cheesy kung fu films in in the yeah. 70s especially because of like the the popularity of Bruce Lee and it was just like let's let's import as many kung fu films as we can and you know just like any genre if you start being like here's the best of the films of this genre and here's 50 more of them you're bound to get into a lot of crap after that. And I think that's sort of where sure. a lot of the, you know, the the jokes sort of came from is like, yeah, you're you're watching a, a bad film to start with, or maybe not as great as some of the other ones, and then it's got this terrible dubbing because the plot doesn't make sense to begin with. So they're <laughs> just gonna make stuff up. Yeah, and the translation sometimes is just not there. Like I I I've seen it a lot in um you know, if, if I'm watching something in Cantonese and I see the English translation, it's not precise and i can only imagine that like when we watch parasite if you don't know korean i'm sure some of the dialogue was lost a little bit in translation um but somebody did say to me once they said you know yeah like translation it might lose some meaning but it might gain some meaning as well like in in the english language it might mean something we might take something different than the the korean audience would take so it's it's interesting i i think that people in general are getting uh, are, are becoming a lot more open mind to you know, quote unquote, foreign things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's great. I think, it, it, you know, even when I think of food, like, I think it's kind of funny now, like six year old kids are eating sushi. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> I, I remember, I, I just think it's such a weird thing. Cause, you know, I remember growing up and if she told someone you ate raw fish for dinner, people would think you're 
crazy and you get like made fun of on the playground kind of thing but now it's like a cool thing to do so it's yeah. different it's, it's a different time and i think that we're moving along especially in in north america where it's you know it's an american term but like we are like a melting pot we are a bunch of different cultures together um and for better or worse it's it's turning the culture of north america into something very different than it used to be like then when we were growing up mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's go back a bit and talk about Hollywood making films with with Asian lead characters or with a majority Asian cast. Uh, when doing some research, I was shocked at just how few there were overall. Yeah. We'll, we'll save our thoughts on some of the more recent releases until a bit later, but uh, but till then, we'll get to the biggest film of its time, which is The Joy Luck Club, which came out in 1993, directed by Wayne Wang, with a budget of $11 million and a gross $32 million, which is a very respectable number for a film of that era. My mother started the Joy Luck Club. For 30 years, these women feasted, forgot past wrongs, laughed, played, lost and won, and told the best stories. No talking in Chinese. How do I know you're not cheating? We are your auntie, and we are very honest people. Uh, You were talking about you first watched it in college. What was your experience with it? I had always heard it, and I always had a bit of a, a push against watching something we'll get into crazy rich asians later but i had the same push even as an adult where i i kind of didn't want to watch it just because i felt like people were saying you have to watch it because it's asian Mm -hmm. and i was like okay you know you don't have to watch sound of music just because you're white so i don't don't understand what we're doing here um so i used to always be kind of a bit stubborn and rebellious about that and but then eventually i think one night i just i just watched it and i thought I was like, that's interesting. And I read the book as well. I had read the book, I think, before I watched the movie. Um, and it's an interesting thing to see because I, it, it's cool because they have, it does reflect Asian culture in the sense of there are, you know, the elder generation that has, um, the, you know, they speak English in, 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 in an accent, like they have a, they have a Chinese accent while speaking English. Um, it does talk about, the differences in generation of the new generation that comes up that is born in America or has come over at a very young age and grows up in, in, on this side of the world um, with kind of your foot in two separate camps. Um, and so I, I like that. I, as a movie, I wasn't, I think it's a bit overly dramatic. actually. Mm-hmm. At times. That's more of a, a movie, like in terms of what it means to, kind of Asian American film history, like the, the culture of it, I think it, it means a lot. Like it's a touch point. It was one of the first movies to come out before that. It was a movie called The Flower Drum Song, which was 1961. You know, it was a, a Rodgers and Hammerstein, Hammerstein um, production, which actually was right after Sound of Music, funny enough. Um, but it, it took, you know, 30 some odd years for another one to come out. And then reading up on it um i remember them reading saying well they thought that after in 93 after this movie had come out they thought that there would be a lot more of these movies they thought that you know asian films asian stars would be more prominent in hollywood so a bunch of studios started to actually cast and and get like green lights and stuff but then it never worked out and the idea of having asians on film just kind of petered away and I'm not 100% sure why that was. I don't know if maybe they had done some research and, and like um, audience research, like testing research and said, well, actually, that's not what the, the audience is looking for um, at the time, you know, in, in the in the early 90s. But I think certainly it was a movie that came up. People thought 
yes, this is a new thing and, and but it never ended up working out that way. How did you find the film though? You know, I, I was a little worried. I was like, oh, you're probably going to give me a, a ton of crap for this or maybe I'll get like some backlash <laughs> for it. But I, I really didn't care for it. Um, yeah. I, I appreciated everything that it, it was doing. You know, what you're talking about, this idea of, of sorting, sort of bridging the, the traditional Chinese culture and telling their story and then what the, the newer generation growing up in America was like. But overall, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't know going in, like I, I went in pretty blindly other than the fact that it's like, it's a story of mothers and daughters. That's basically yeah. all I knew about it. I didn't realize that it was going to play around with time so much. So it kind of took me a little bit to get adjusted to figure out who was who in the characters because they would, they would change so, so quickly. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. they're young, they're middle-aged, they're older. Is this all the same person? Are they different people? So it was a little tricky for me because I also found that they weren't really saying each other's names enough. Uh, so like when I was like, is, this older version of this character, who, who is it connected to? So That's it was a true. Actually, I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think about that. You're right. They don't do that. Yeah. I, it's, I don't think it's a particularly good movie. The, I mean, I hate to be that person that says like, Oh, the book is better than the movie, um, <laughs> but the book really is better. Like, and then, and the book itself is, is a bit dramatic as well. The author, Amy Tan, she has a bit of a reputation for being slightly overdramatic and um, not to say that she's not authentic. Cause I, I, you know, I think she, she is an Asian American herself. So, but sometimes I think it's, it's maybe a bit overblown. Um, and I would say, I would say, I, I rewatched it recently with actually a, a couple friends, like virtually we were watching it. And I just said, I said, how often is it that one friendship group has that many dramatic backstories to it like it that's very weird that one group of friends all four of the women experience like not just trauma but like it, it, intense trauma all, all four of them um but i mean it it means it's it means a lot to to like if you're looking at a timeline if you're looking at the history of asian americans in film it meant a lot to to the culture at the time but like i said it didn't really take off not in the mainstream anyways um you know, there were some independent, so I know we're going to get into um, Better Luck Tomorrow, which, but even that, that came out, you know, almost 10 years after Joy Luck Club. Um, but it, it meant a lot to the, the culture. It's just a, a bit of a shame. It's not the greatest movie. Yeah. Um, did you, have you seen Flower Drum Song though? It's a, no. quite an old movie. No, I, I don't it, really know about that one either. So I discovered it, um, literally like last couple weeks ago, um, when I was, when I was preparing for this and it's, like I said, it's a Rodgers and Hammerstein film. It's on Amazon Prime, if anybody is, is curious to watch it. Um, and that takes place in San Francisco, Chinatown. Uh, and it's a musical. And there's like dancing and singing and jokes. And it's it's a much better done movie than Joy Luck Club. And I, it's interesting to watch it because you think after this movie had come out, this was a time too where yellowface was still pretty common. Like it, it wasn't unheard of that you would have white actors um, playing Asian characters. And so to have a cast that was strictly, you know, purely Asian, there's only, I think, one white character in it. And the white character is like a burglar. <laughs> so that, that's just something. But um, yeah, the whole movie is, is Asian American cast, with the exception of one person who's oddly is an African American who plays a Chinese woman. Oh. Uh, her name's Juanita Hall. Yeah, it's it's interesting how that works. <laughs> but it 
Yeah, the Flower Drum Song was, um, it was a Broadway show. And she was one of the original members of the Broadway cast, oh. I believe. So, and, and a few of them too, like Jack Sue and all that. So it, it's similar to Joy Luck Club, similar to Crazy Rich Asians. They have, um, uh, they use a lot of Japanese actors uh, versus Chinese actors. There weren't too many Chinese actors at the time. Um, and Joy Luck Club is the same thing. It's, it's, it's a Chinese story, but a lot of the actors that are in it are Japanese or Vietnamese, mm-hmm. um, which is a bit of a, a kind of a weird touch point for, especially in Asia, like just culturally and historically speaking, it, it can be a bit of a sensitive issue that did come up in, in more modern movies. Um, but yeah, Flower Drum Song, it's, it's a pretty interesting movie because I don't think we would have, you would expect to see uh, a, a cast of not even just Asian Americans, but just non-white. Like you wouldn't expect to see an entire cast of, of Latin actors, of black actors, indigenous actors who are dancing around, like making jokes and, and, and singing. And, you know, it's, it's very happy. It's not a struggle story or anything like that. Um, the story is though, it's very similar to Joy Luck Club in that it talks about the younger generation, uh, of, of kids who grew up in San Francisco, Chinatown versus the, very traditional, uh, you know, older generation that is there. So that that's a common thread I've noticed among Asian American movies, especially the kind of the three big ones. Um, but yeah, check it out. It, it's a very it's interesting. Like I said, it's on Amazon Prime. So if you have that, it's, it's a pretty easy movie to access. Yeah, I'll add it to my watch list for sure. I think one of the other things for Joy Luck Club that, that didn't really work for me is, you know, the movie was basically like all these young women being like, Mother, why why don't you love me? And they're like, well, let me tell you my story. Back in China, I was abused, and now yeah. I'm uh, here in America, so I'm going to be hard on you. And so it's basically just like generational trauma. I'm just like, you're, you're just passing this on. Yeah, I mean that that's pretty common among Asian people. I won't lie, it's not. And I wouldn't say it's trauma. It's more of my mom was hard on me like this, and I mean again, like I think Joy Love Club. It was so dramatic. Like I I don't know many people who suffered such a traumatic story. And I mean, talking about realism as well, like this is not a good thing, but if a gen, especially that generation, if they did experience something that traumatic and especially to do with, you know, children or, or, or rape and things like that, that's nothing. You don't talk about that after, like there's no way um, somebody would tell that story to their children. Um, especially like, it's just, it's that something that wouldn't happen, but, the idea of my mom was hard on me and therefore I'm going to be hard on you. That is very real. And that is something I think, I mean, most of my Asian friends, we can all commiserate with that, which is, you know, your parents are tough on you because that's how they were raised and that's how they think that's parenting. You know, it's, it's, it's different. And maybe part of that, you know, raising of children, it does have to do with some trauma that again, like I said, it wouldn't be said, like you wouldn't, say those things i mean there's a few things in the movie that i think that they do they do i hesitate to use the term whitewash but they do make it um more palatable i would say for for a caucasian audience to to watch and to understand as well which i don't necessarily think is a bad thing either because to make a movie that is just purely like assuming everybody understands you know asian customs or chinese customs in particular in that movie that's not correct. Like, especially in 1993, I don't, I don't think everybody would have known that even today, like people, not everybody is aware of, of different Chinese customs, unless you happen to have someone close to you who is, who is Asian background. And that goes for any culture, obviously. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think as, you know, as a white person, I, I probably, there's some stuff in it that maybe I, I don't connect with as much and maybe that hindered me truly getting into it or, or whether it was things like that. But I, I can definitely see the, the significance and importance of it. And I am glad I finally watched it. It was one that has kind of been on my, my radar for a while. It's not a, you know, a, a style of movie I typically go for, the yeah. melodrama, but I'm glad I did watch it. Very melodrama too. But it's funny too that you, you say it, you know, as a white, it's like I grew up not knowing things about white culture as well. And like I watched it on TV, not really, you know, I know it sounds silly, but like something like casserole mm. had no idea what that was. I thought it was a made up <laughs> thing on TV. And I, I just always was like, oh yeah. And then I went to the friend's house and they actually had casserole for dinner. And I was like, oh, this is real. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Like it's one of those silly things. Like it's, it's, and that's what I think, I know I know you love movies and I, I'm sure people who are listening love movies. It's, that's why movies are great. It's because it can open you up to something beyond your bubble, beyond your world, which is, again, going back to like, you know, talking about films that have subtitles. You can open up your world so much more if you just open up your brain that much, you know? Absolutely. Uh, now, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but another film from sort of this era of not being recent is Better Luck Tomorrow, the Justin Lin directorial debut that stars an all-Asian young cast as they commit crimes of increasing volatility in the fallout it has. It helped make John Cho, who at the time was emerging in the American Pie films, more prominent and launched the character of Han, played by Sung Kang, that may or may not be the same character in the Fast and the Furious universe that Justin Lin has directed five entries so far. Now, this was a movie that you highly recommended for me to catch up with, and I loved it. It's the the type of film. Oh, that, I'm glad. Yeah, it's the type of film that can have uh, stereotypes, both good and bad, because there's a wealth of characters to balance out the traits, and the characters themselves are, are more three dimensional because of it. Do this by tomorrow, you get a fifty. What? We don't have to play by the rules. We can make our own. It's easy money. It'll be fun. We were putting the laws of supply and demand into practice, and then it snowball. You think you can break in? It's gonna be a lot of money involved. Our straight A's were our alibi. As long as our grades were there, we were trusted. You think you can get away with anything, don't you? Oh, yeah, if you're clever enough. Woo! We were making so much money, we couldn't spend it fast enough. What do you think he is, some Chinese movie stuff? Hi, I am Chow Yun Fat. For sure. And I think, by the way, I think that they have confirmed that Han is the same. Like, Better Luck Tomorrow is Han's origin story. Yeah, from, it, it's a weird thing where I'm just like... Series. Is it, is it, I, I, I think know. I'm I'm pretty confident. I, I remember seeing that when everybody was like, what is this movie, Better Luck Tomorrow? What do you mean? And it meant like for people who had seen Better Luck Tomorrow, you know, and, and were watching Cast and Fear, it made a lot of sense to them. Because what are the chances like the, the characters going to be Han, the same name? But um, but yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that link is there. But I'm so glad you liked it, though, because I for me, if you ask me which is like the most important movie for Asian Americans in Hollywood cinema, to me, it's better luck tomorrow because it's it's a movie that I hate saying this term, but it's like it subverts stereotypes. It went against what everybody believed, yet also played into that as well. You know, like the the lead character Ben, he's super very academic, and they're part of the uh, you know those academic games. Uh, the math, like a math club kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so there, are, there are those stereotypes of this kid who he wants to get into the best college. He wants to, you know, he's studying so hard for his SATs. He joins the basketball team just to, 
um, to add it to his resume. Like everything is about his college application. And those are stereotypes. But then you also have uh, other characters in it who are kind of, you know, Justin Lin, I saw an interview, he called it like the urban gangsta Mm -hmm. or suburban gangsta, sorry, like the suburban one where it's like you have no business acting like you're from the streets, but you do for whatever reason. Um, And it's such a great, to me, it was one of the best depictions of Asian Americans because it's so real. Like it was, especially I think for our generation growing up is, um, it it was very real. Like a, a lot of Asian kids, you gravitated towards a lot of hip hop um, for you know one reason or the other. That was kind of your thing, and you didn't really use. I don't want to say you didn't use the Asian identity, but maybe you, you kind of went towards a little bit more black culture, which is what um, Virgil, the character of Virgil, does quite a bit. And you know, and they're up to some really shady behavior. And one of the reasons that they're able to get away with it is because in the school, people look at the teachers and everything, and say, "Well, they have such good grades." You know, they're such good kids. Of course, they're not up to anything bad, but they're up to, you know, a lot of no good um, during study groups and things like that. So for me, it's I, I, I love it. Like, I just watched it again last night. I hadn't seen it in a long time, but um, it's one of those movies that as I'm getting older, I'm appreciating it a lot more now, especially just as a piece of film, like a piece of, um, a piece of art that Justin Wynn put out there. And that's his first um, solo movie that he did too, like the, which I think is, incredible just um, from a filmmaking perspective uh but yeah but better luck tomorrow was one of the probably the more important movies because it just like i said it showed asians in a different light and there's like a really famous um story about it being uh premiered at sundance uh when it came out in 2002 and one of the people in the audience asked justin one question was saying like do, do you think that it's do you think that it's negative that or a bad thing rather that you are showing Asian Americans in such a negative light? You know, do you think that you're basically kind of not ruining, but like you're ruining the reputation of Asian Americans. And it was Roger Ebert who stood up and he said, he like yelled at this person and said, you know, they're allowed to show themselves however they want to show themselves. And I love that story because I just think, yeah, you know, for a long time, people thought the only way to to depict an Asian on screen was, a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, that, that I'm thinking of ER and Ally McBeal and, and those are Kung Fu artists, you know, there wasn't anything that showed them as, or showed us as being very flawed individuals, people who did really bad things. Yeah. And, and I, I totally agree. This, this movie has like a real sort of music video feel to it, which is a, a bit of the yeah. style at the time in the early two thousands where you had like these young up and coming directors who are imparting, you know, a very frenetic style onto their filmmaking. And it works so well for this because you get like, I, I love it, you know, whereas, you know, uh, you think of other crime movies or heist movies where uh, they have scenes of them meticulously planning a heist or something like this. They, they basically do that same sort of style in this, but it's like study sessions. So it just works yeah. so well. Of like, <laughs> if you know the film language that Lynn is borrowing from, it works so yeah. well and, and sort of helps you appreciate it even more. For sure. And actually, it's funny you say like the uh, music video thing was, so MTV was a producer of mm. uh, the movie and what, a big funder for the film was actually MC Hammer which is the more, the most random kind of thing you've ever heard because uh, I think Justin Lin has met him at a casino or something in Vegas and like they had just been chatting and Justin Lin needed money like his co- production company was about to fold so he just 
took a shot and called MC Hammer and MC Hammer gave him money the next day, like wired him money into a bank account. So we wouldn't have Better Luck Tomorrow. We wouldn't have Fast and Furious the way that we know it, maybe from Justin Lin um, and Star Trek if it wasn't for MC Hammer. So thank you, MC Hammer. I think the most shocking part of that story is that MC Hammer had money in 2002. I know. Weird, right? Like yeah. it's such a weird... <laughs> It's it's I, he probably recovered in the nineties. <laughs> like it's such a weird. I, I remember reading that thing. I went, that can't be true. And then I looked at it more. And I went, oh, that is true. I went, wow, impressive. You're right, though. Yeah. How did MC Hammer get that money? Who knows? He finally started getting his royalty checks for uh, for Kansas. yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, and he didn't have to pay the IRS anymore for yeah. for whatever the hell he was doing before. But yeah, no, I, I better watch tomorrow. It's such a great movie, and it's one that I think when it came out. Um, it generated a good amount of buzz, but it's gotten a bit, it got a bit lost in time, I think, for a little while. But then with Fast and Furious and then introducing um, Han, the character, people started to take a bit more interest into it, which I, I think is really cool. Like, it, it's a movie that has a different life. And it's, you know, like you said of, of the music video thing, it's very nostalgic watching it. Like, if you grew up in a certain time or if you just like watching, you know, I, it's weird calling it a period piece, but it kind of is a period piece in that, it's it's the early 2000s, you know, that's the way people dressed and the technology that was around then. And it's just like, even just seeing like the, the way the girls had their hair and stuff. Like, oh yeah, we all used to do that. So I don't know why we did that, but it's, yeah, I, I love that for that aspect as well, that that's more of a filmmaking yeah. Speaking of, uh, towards that, like some of the costumes, I, I look yeah. back <laughs> and, you know, I, I find often with movies is... Costume designers or directors will basically choose a sort of style or an outfit for a character, and that's their style for the whole movie. Whereas this, I sort of like that they would sort of, you know, have different styles and different scenes depending on what's going on. I look at someone like Virgil, who you're talking about, was being very influenced by by hip hop and black culture. Uh, his outfits kind of change radically scene to scene. And then there's like one scene where they're going door to door. I don't know if they're collecting donations or something. It's got like this super baggy pants where I'm like, that was just like gave me nightmares of the past of, of what people would wear. But he isn't dressed like that the entire time. You know, they he's allowed to play with his style, which is something that we did then. We were trying to figure out who we were and what we dress like. And, you know, you can be, you know, dressed like a punk one day or be dressed up like you know, inspired by hip hop culture another day and then rave culture yeah. or something like that, where you could be very Good. fluid with that. Yeah. And, and, and like the funny thing about that is, is with all the stereotypes that are associated with certain styles of clothing, these guys were top of the class, right? Like when they went to school, when they, you know, they were very quote unquote proper students at that time. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You're right to like play with that idea of, well, they're dressing according to the occasions that, the situation presents itself if that makes sense Mm -hmm. like when they need to be done up and you know and very like again proper they are one way but then when they get get to hang out with their buddies you're right they're wearing those gigantic jeans which i did notice as well it made me laugh i saw that oh yeah guys did used to do that like they had (laughs) these massive jeans um but then in the next scene yeah he's just wearing you know, like a polo shirt or, or just like a, a t-shirt or something like that, you know, with a regular, regular pair of not as baggy jeans, not yeah. as skinny as the jeans are today, but not as baggy as, as those big, almost parachute type <laughs> jeans, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fun trip down kind of memory lane. I think, again, if you're of a certain generation, if you grew up in a certain time, it's funny watching those movies back, like, and that, and, and, 
it's interesting because then it wasn't like they were specifically trying to make a movie. Like today, if somebody tried to make a movie about the 90s, they would go really hardcore into, okay, like these were the kind of the more stereotypical things that were worn back then. But because this movie, it just was made in 2002, they literally just went, just go into your closet, pick out like whatever you're actually wearing today. That's what's going to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I always find that that's the more interesting of, uh, like I said, period pieces. They're not really period pieces, but it kind of is, I guess, because it's, it's taking place in a very particular type, particular time in, in uh, American culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, there seems to be a bit of a growing trend of allowing Asian American filmmakers the opportunity to blend American values with traditions from their homeland. You've got stuff like The Farewell, Crazy Rich Asians, and Columbus, which managed to combine themes to make films that are unique to the experiences of immigrants from East Asia. Uh, what do you think of this recent trend? The Nick you're dating is Nick Young. Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. That's what Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian bachelor. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> Mom, this is Rachel Chu. She just thinks you're some like unrefined banana. No, no, no. Uh, those are a few fingers. Yellow on the outside, or white on the inside. Do something crazy. I get very torn about it, if I'm honest. Um, I was, I remember somebody in uh, your episode of uh, talking about the uh, the five bloods and talking about black cinema, um, a couple of people there mentioned like, God, we're just so sick of of black movies just being about slavery. Mm-hmm. Like we're so much more than that. And and I would agree with that in the sense of so many Asian movies do. I mean, it's obviously not slavery. I'm not trying to compare it at all, but just this idea of it's one trope that is always being used. And I find in Asian American movies in particular, they're always looking at the divide between the East and the West, uh, different generations growing up in the West and then they go to the East. Like The Farewell, for example, I know that when it was released in over here, like a lot, I, I actually, I really liked that movie. I thought it was really well done. I liked Aquafina in it and um, it did pretty well over here. But when it was released in Asia, it didn't do well at all because everybody thought that's a bit extra, isn't it? Like, that's not how it is. You're, you're overblowing it a little bit. It's, it's a bit much. And I kind of, like when I take all of those things together, I look at it and I go, I think it's great that there's movies being made period of, of Asian American stories, because that is a part of the experience, right? Like trying to, like I said, straddle two different cultures that can be very, very different. Like they can be extremes of one another at times, but at the same time, I think that it's, it's, been done enough like i i think we've we've done it um we've done it well we've done it not so well um and i like movies like searching for example like that's another john cho john cho's the best he's, he's in like everything that's great john cho um uh what was uh harold and kumar that was the other one i was thinking about like those movies even always be my maybe that came out um with ali wong i like those ones a little bit better just because to me those are movies that it could be, you could put anybody into those roles, right? It doesn't have to be um, an Asian actor. It doesn't have to be a black actor, a white actor, a Latin actor. It doesn't, it could, it's just a story. It's a universal story that's being told. But because the actors are Asian, you do, always be my maybe was more um, showing this. It, it had elements of being Asian in it, like in the background, you know, things that you pick up and, white audiences might not have picked it up, but it's like we watch it and we go, oh, that's interesting. Like 
they the kids took their shoes off when they like ran through the house just to go to the backyard. Like that's something we all have to do. Although in Canada, I know that most people do that. Um, so, so me personally, I, I prefer movies like that. Like the ones that it doesn't necessarily need to be about the East versus West one generation versus another generation. Um, just cause I think it's been a bit played now. And I, and I'm also just a bit sick of it. Cause I think that we're, again, we're so much more than that. We don't need to just tell that same story over and over again yeah it's it's tough because i i i think back often to that comment that uh was made by i believe it was it was tony on the defy bloods episode about slave films and and yeah it's it's one of those i I guess for filmmakers it's a bit of a frustrating point where they're being given so few opportunities and when they're given the chance to they want to make sure it's you know a quote-unquote important film Mm mm-hmm and, and so how do you balance that? So like, you know, you look at something like Harold and Kumar, where other than the fact that they, they do get a bit of uh, racial abuse thrown their way for, for being uh, Korean and, and Indian, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, mm-hmm. other than that, that really involves not like almost nothing about their characters. You know, th- there's at the beginning of, if I'm, it's been so long since I've seen it, but Cal Penn's character, I think his family really wants him to be a doctor or something like that. Yeah. And that's a bit of a, a bit of an Asian stereotype that they're, they're basically sort of flipping on its head of being like, well, why do I have to be a doctor? Why do I have to do that? Follow that same path just because my parents want me to. But other than that, you know, it's about uh, two guys who are, you know, smoking a lot of weed and wanting to buy some hamburgers. And and that's the entire point point of the movie. And it's sort of similar to Better Luck Tomorrow is like, once you sort of get past of, great, these are are Asian characters played by Asian actors, uh, we can then explore any kind of story we want, whether it's, you know, a romantic comedy or a heist movie or a stoner comedy, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I, 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 I mean, I, I'm not in the industry, so I, I can't say for sure what it is, but it is, it does seem to me that studios are only looking at it's, it's what makes the money, right? Like what's going to make you the most money. And I think that the dramatic, generational gaps the um i mean i'm surprised there's no movies about like the chinese head tax or like building railways and and mining and things like that those are like the real sob stories and i you know in the in the states um there's the japanese internment camp um there was a place called angel island i don't know if you're familiar with that which is off the coast of california which is similar to uh was it Ellis Island, I think, on the East Coast, which was when a lot, where a lot of European immigrants came through, mm-hmm. um, and and the horrors of that. Like I, I've read some of that, just like I've seen some documentaries about it, and it was terrible. Like it was, it was honestly really um, a pretty traumatic time for the people who were trying to get a better life for themselves. And so I get where those stories make for maybe more more of a box office draw because. That's where I think that I think studios think that white audiences are more comfortable seeing us in. Like they want to see the struggle of the immigrant. They don't want to see just, oh, here we are in, in, in a, like in a film like The Notebook, you know, like it could have been, I guess The Notebook was a bit dated, but you know, something like, like Devil Wars Prada, that could have been anybody. It didn't have to be white actors. It could have been any, any race could have been in there, but I think that studios don't like to see us in those roles yet. I think uh, hopefully it's changing, you know, hopefully that, that changes, but there is a reason that for so long we weren't put into those roles. 
And I think it's, they just didn't think that we would be a box office draw. I, you know, for Sound of Metal, you mentioned at the very, very top, I was watching an interview with Riz Ahmed, and he was saying that during, I think it was one of the film festivals when they were, were bringing around Sound of Metal, somebody, like studio people, like industry people, well-known like powerful people would come up to him and go, you know, I think it's really great that you're in this movie. Like, you know, I know I couldn't take that risk. Like there's no way I could take a risk with, with, you know, with this, with, with you and my movie, basically saying like, I couldn't take a risk of not having a white actor play that role. Like, uh, I think it's great that you get that opportunity, which is a very backhanded kind of thing to say, because it's saying like, yeah, it's great that you're getting the opportunity, but I know for me, I couldn't take that risk with my company. Like I couldn't risk losing money. And I think that if we can maybe get past that and that that's to do with, with people watching it, right? Like that's if more people watch and that is not just, don't just watch it because, Oh, there's, there's Asian people or black people or Latin people watch it because they're good movies, right? Like if, if it's a film that you like, go and watch it and support it because um, that's what is going to draw them to I hate to say it, allow you know, non-white actors to take those roles. And we all fall into those stereotypes, you know, with with Asian actors for the longest time, it was the martial artists, right? Like the Jackie Chan of the day in the 80s and things like that. Um, and Michelle Yeoh and James Bond, like she was a girl that could fight, you know, that, that was that was her role in that. And then it became the nerd, the, the over-ambitious, perfect kid, like Mean Girls, for example, they had the cool Asians and the nerdy Asians and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully it changes. I mean, it, I, I, I hope it changes, but it is something that I find interesting because it's a bit frustrating sometimes to see that we're always pigeonholed into a certain type of movie. And although that movie isn't, that type of movie isn't negative necessarily, like it is a real thing, like a younger generation versus a, not versus, I shouldn't say, but a younger generation in comparison to your parents' generation there is a there is a cultural gap there, and that is interesting to explore. I just think that it would be great if we got opportunities to do other things. Yeah, and it, it almost seems like it's it's frustrating that obviously there there's people popularity in, in different communities and things like that. But it seems like John Cho seems to be the only real star. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think um, looking at John Cho's career as well, he's very purposely, I think, chose roles that weren't stereotypes. Like he, he almost like takes very particularly like, and I, I would, I would say Lucy Liu is the same thing. Mm. Um, I think that they purposely chose roles that weren't stereotypes, but they weren't. And, and that might have for Lucy Liu in particular, I think might have stymied her career a little bit. You know, I know she did kill Bill and, and that could be considered to be a bit more stereotype, but um it is interesting. Like, yeah, I, I Randall Park, all he's he's a big one too because he does comedy, um, like pure comedy, and he's great. Like, I I don't know anybody that doesn't like Randall Park. He's he's awesome in everything that he does. But, um, yeah, it's it's a bit fresher. And hopefully, I remember there was that campaign like online a little while ago of um starring John Cho, and they kept putting John Cho's face into different <laughs> posters and things like that, like like first, uh, what was it, not first man, uh, Mar- The Martian, so they took Matt Damon out and they put John Cho, and, and it's true, you know, you, those movies, it doesn't matter what race the person is, it, you could throw anybody in there, mm-hmm. and I think John Cho, for, you know, he, he, to me, looking at his career, he, he purposely chooses movies that don't 
involved just doing kind of the Asian thing, you know, but he at the same, not to say that he isn't, because if you talk to him about, um, about his Korean roots and is that he's very proud of them. It's not like he's trying to hide it or anything like that. But I think that he always wanted to do maybe a little bit more, but then on the occasions that for, for instance, taking, um, the role of like Zulu in, in Star Trek, you know, that's a very kind of honor. It's a very honorable thing to do because that was a, a, a role that was originated from George Takei and he was the only Asian dude on TV for a very long time. So John Cho taking that mantle up is, is a pretty big deal. But it's, and I mean, I think Asian men in particular, the actors, I think they get a bit of a, for a long time, they had a bit of a, um, uh, you know, bad end of the stick on that one because they weren't, they were probably the ones who were, I hate to use the term demasculated because I know that that's not really a word that we use anymore, but um, this idea that they were soft, you know, that Asian guys were soft and they weren't sexual, you know, sexually appealing or anything like that. That was something that was, they were used a lot for punchlines, um, whether it was their accent, whether it was, you know, whatever jokes you know about asian guys and so i think john cho is always very aware of that um so i'm i'm really happy for him though because i feel like he's kind of peaking at like such a great time right now because now there are more roles and there is a bigger demand for him mm-hmm. um whereas i think somebody like lucy Liu, for example i almost think that she kind of i don't want to say she missed the boat but i i feel like there's a lot of younger actresses right now that the studios would rather take than Lucy Liu, which is unfortunate for her. Yeah, and and I also wonder if maybe that's a bit of a, an age thing at play too, because she was really yeah. popular in the in the mid two thousands with the Charlie's Angels films. Yeah, and she hosted Saturday Night Live. And I remember recently when Aquafina hosted it, she talked about how you know uh, Lucy Liu hosting SNL was you know, the biggest thing of the year for her was being able to see someone that looked like her hosting a, a show like SNL. Yeah, it's. It, Incredible, and like I think Sandra O oh has done it as well. I think recently, um, was it like last year or something? But it's a, like Lucy Liu, I think, is one of the actresses that sometimes we forget about when talking about Asian American film, just because she was in a bit of an odd time. I actually, I wouldn't say we forget about her. I think that we all remember her, but um, certainly in this current mode that we're in, like she didn't hit at a time that, say, for instance, when Joy Luck Club came out that would have been maybe more interest in, in having an Asian face on TV. And now with after crazy with Asians, there's another one, but like you said, there's an, there's an age aspect to it. And there's actually, um, Ali Wong wrote a book, which I read and she mentioned like something about how an actress who, a very successful actress uh, who is Asian, she mentioned to Ali Wong that, uh, she felt a bit left out almost that like all of this success is happening, but she wasn't a part of it. Because effectively, I think she's aged out of it. Now, I'm just assuming it's Lucy Liu, but I really do think it's her. Um, but that's just my guess. But it makes it would make sense to me that she would feel that way because she is, you know, she had to go. I'm sure she had to go through quite a bit, you know, trying to of, of discrimination and and probably really rude comments made towards her and her ability to get cast in the role. Um, and now she sees. You know these this new young generation of actors who have all the opportunity in front of them, and I don't think she's she's negative in the sense of you know she doesn't want them to do well or she's bitter about it, but she, I can understand why she feels or she would feel a bit um, 
left out. Like, I think that's probably the best way to say it. Yeah, she came, she came exactly in between, halfway in between, you know, Joy Luck Club and the recent trend that is happening now of, of, of Asian actors being, uh, given this opportunity to, to have much more of a prominent role in, in filmmaking. For sure. Um, now, uh, I, I think sort of the, the last main point I want to touch on is that this idea of, of film tourism, the idea that the only mainstream all Asian cast films made by Hollywood have been visits to the Orient with stuff like memoirs of a geisha and the recent live <laughs> action remake of Mulan. Uh, why do you think that Hollywood feels more comfortable putting lots of money in an Asian film only if it doesn't take place in America. Loyal, brave, and true. It is my duty to protect my family. Ancestors, please protect her. What is your name, soldier? Hua Jun, commander, son of Hua Zhou. We're going to make men out of every single one of you. I think, again, it goes back to that idea of where white audience or their perception of what a white audience is comfortable seeing us in. You know, I think that maybe they don't like to see us in the role of a successful immigrant for, I mean, there might be a multitude of reasons for that. But um, I think it's a bigger sell. You know, this idea of a geisha, it is a stereotype, right? Like of, of Asian women, you know, both those movies that focus on Asian women um, are, we are kind of supposed to be very subordinate, very meek, very amiable people. We're, you know, we're, we serve people, you know, that that's kind of um, a very long running stereotype that Asian women have had uh, in, in the West and in the East as well. I, I won't lie. So I think that when they show movies like, Mulan, like um, Memoirs of a Geisha, they just assume that's. And it's interesting if you look at the cast, or not the cast, if you look at the crew of both of those movies, the crews are all white, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not, there's not Asian people behind those movies. And so they get to go as kind of ancient or stereotypical or, you know, as however you want to look at it. I think that they're able to do that. Um, and, and assume that that's what audiences want to see. You know, I, I always think sometimes there's not necessarily a racial intent behind studios. Like, I don't think that a studio head is particularly racist and they're just saying, I don't want Asians in my movies. I think they're looking at it, like I said, with the Riz Ahmed thing is they look at it as a risk. If we put an Asian face in a role that could be done by and half. Yeah. Like if you could do that, like why not do that? Because yeah. that is the more, you're going to get more money off of that. So I don't necessarily think studios are, are being racist about it. But then at the same time, they want to tap into that Asian market. So they assume, okay, well, what what role can an Asian do? Well, obviously, it's got to be a live action remake of Mulan or like a movie about geishas. Obviously, that's what that's what it has to be. You know, that it has to be something to do with the culture. Um, but I, you recently watched the the Mulan, the live action. Didn't I you? did. I yeah. Think? Yeah, what do you think of that? Um, you know, I I I went in expecting it to be worse. Uh, I don't think it was <laughs> it was good by any stretch of the imagination, but it was it was fine. Um, mm-hmm. Like I didn't I didn't I I, I didn't give it a, a the like on Letterboxd, uh, but I think I still gave it like a, a two or two and a half stars, whatever it was. It's it was fine. Like I I 
I like the idea of of using the the sort of wuxia style martial arts and, and transporting mm. that for for the story of Mulan. I think that worked really interesting. I hated this idea of of chi being some sort of, yeah. of magic, where it basically reminded me of like midi chlorians from Star Wars. Like, <laughs> as soon as they introduced that, they're like, "What are you talking about?" Um, and obviously, the, the cast was terrific. You know, much like. Uh, Joy Luck Club and, and, and films like that, Crazy Rich Asians, where you've got this very large, impressive cast of basically all the most notable Asian actors, both in North America and from Asia as well. And so it's really it's really great to see that. You know, I, I compared something like The Godfather, where it's like has all the big Italian American actors in one movie. Yeah. Sort of thing. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's great. I mean, I mean, I think any time that you can give the opportunity to show a different, you know, a different race other than European based or American based, um, I think is always amazing, especially in a Hollywood production. But yeah, Mulan and, and the Memoirs of a Geisha, it's, it's, I touched on it a little bit, but they were saying in Memoirs of a Geisha in particular, like there was a, a like controversial casting decision of putting uh, Chinese, like I think, uh, Zhang uh, Ziyi um, or Ziyi Zhang I don't know how she says her name now um, she was in Rush Hour right like way back in the day I think Rush Hour 3 that was her and then she got Memoirs of the Geisha after that but there was a lot of controversy about the fact she's not Japanese she's Chinese why are you casting a Chinese person for a Japanese role but that also just shows you like for a white studio they didn't understand why that was a problem they just went well you guys are Asian like it's fine don't worry about it like just, just just it's cool like and i think gong li was in uh geisha as well and she is a chinese person too um and i and that that's another kind of odd issue that when you have a white crew when you have white casting directors they're not aware of these little intricacies that can come back and bite you in the ass which it did you know people and i don't i think they were probably a bit surprised by that and you mentioned the chi thing in mulan I don't know where the hell they got that from. <laughs> but I think that they just thought, oh, like we hear them talking about chi, but it's like, that's not what chi is. Chi is something that is very different. It's not a magical thing. It, like, it, traditionally speaking, chi was always, I always heard it in terms of like your health. It's, it's about like balancing your energy and, and hot and cold and things like that. It's, it's all very odd, but it's, um, that's what like I grew up with in terms of learning, oh, you, you're eating too many hot foods and your chi is off kind of thing. That's what that is. That's what chi is. Chi is like a, a genuine concept in Chinese culture, but it's not a magical thing that is going to make a girl all of a sudden this amazing warrior that can fight the Hans. I, I, the Hans, like I, I find it. When you put a white crew, that's what's going to end up happening, I think. like, and they're, and they're unaware of it too. Like They're not aware until the movie gets released. I think, oh, there's something wrong with that. Interesting. <laughs> So as as cool as it is to see, you know, like Asian faces on on big screens and, and in big budget movies too. Like I don't know how much Mulan cost, but I mean, it must have cost them a lot of money to make. Um, and I I think Memoirs of Geisha too. That was a big studio movie as well. So it's cool to see that. But it would be even better if they could do it properly and actually get maybe some Asians in the back behind the camera. Yeah. To tell them, you know, right or wrong, this is this is how it is. But I don't, how do you, how do you feel about that though? When you see Asians like specifically in those roles, does it like does it? I know after you said um, 
the comment that Tony had made in that the the, the five bloods episode it kind of stuck with you but like did you ever consider that before of yeah we see these um you know racialized individuals who are always in the same type of story yeah, I, I think it's something that's sort of uh, subconsciously always sort of bugged me and I never was able to word it. Or I, I think also maybe a concern of mine was like, I don't want to speak for, you know, the black community and say like, you know, I, as great as, you know, 12 Years a Slave is, I don't want to see a, a million copies of that sort of thing. Um, so it was nice to just sort of hear it being put in words that this actually is a bit of a concern in, in the black community as well, in the, the black film community. And and. Yeah, I, I, I would, you know, uh, we talk a, a bit about like um, uh, a searching you mentioned that could have been literally anyone in it, but they have John Cho yeah. in it, and you know, I don't think once they make any sort of uh, reference to him or his family's race, there's there's nothing at all about nothing. that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, like if it was a mother instead of a father, there would be no difference because it was it was literally just a character uh, looking for a the parent, last child. Yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. all it was, and that that's the sort of stuff I, I really enjoy seeing. And like, I don't want to be like, well, you shouldn't make that sort of movie because like I'm not <laughs> the one that that has a story to tell. If if that's what the creators feel that that's the story that they want to tell, then like, yes, make that story, make make films like that. But at the same time, yeah, I'd love to just see, you know, regular films. What, what's it like? Um, you know, it's interesting. You talk about, uh, you know, plugging in John Cho in different movies. Um, my wife and I talk about who's going to replace Daniel Craig in the James Bond films. And, mm. uh, and we both decided we really would like Henry Golding to replace him. Interesting. Yeah, oh, I didn't even think about that. Because, like, oh, okay. uh, I watched them in The Gentleman recently after Crazy Rich Asians, and they're so completely different characters for him. Yeah. But, like, he still has that, like, worldly suaveness to him. He's got the yeah. sex appeal. He can do the action sort of stuff. And I don't think it has, you know, anything to do with it. If, you know, if, if purists want to be like, he has to be British, well, you know what? Henry Golding. Uh, yeah. He's British. He's British, so he there you British. go. <laughs> I mean, there was t- there's talk of Idris Elba as well, wasn't there, for mm-hmm. a time. I, I don't know if he might be a bit too old now, because yeah. I think that was when um, when they were casting for Daniel Craig. But there was a lot of controversy about that within the UK of Idris Elba, you know, being... And he is, at that point, too, was an established star. So you couldn't tell me, oh, it was a box office thing, right? Like, you couldn't say, oh, well... I'm not sure if Henry Golden is going to make money, but at the same time, it's 007. A James Bond movie will always make money because people will watch it because it's James Bond. But that's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, Henry Golding, that'd be interesting, right? Yeah, that'd be very interesting. And, uh, and that yeah. will have nothing to do with uh, him being Asian or, or whatever. Yeah, I just think that he would be a really interesting choice for that. That would be that would be very interesting. But I'm curious to see what they where they go with that because I know that they're um, under a bit of pressure to say like are we just going to go with another white guy? Like, is that what's going to happen? Or are they going to branch out and try something a little bit different? I, who knows? But that, yeah, Henry Golden's a really interesting choice. So I, I'd like to see it more just in terms of, and that, like, it's, it's a, it's a concept I had with um, female movies as well, or not concept. It's just like a, a bit of an issue I have with female movies in terms of um, like, they're always remaking guy movies like for example like you know ocean 11 ghostbusters they came out with like f- female versions mm-hmm. of those 
And I was always like, why can't we just like Widows, for example, I thought was really great. You know, like that was like female driven. Why can't we just tell our own story? And I, Michelle Rodriguez years ago, I remember seeing an interview with her where she said, we don't need to tell white stories. Like we have our own stories that we can tell, like as, as for her in particular, like as a Latin woman, she, they have their own stories that they can tell. And I was like, yeah, like that's interesting that we can, we have our own stories to tell, but then that shouldn't preclude us either from doing movies like, like a James Bond. Um, I know Jenna Chan, for example, uh, who was in Crazy Rich Asians, and she's also an episode of Sherlock. Um, she was in a, I think it was a, a movie with Margot Robbie, and it was t- took place in Victorian British, like the Victorian UK. And she played like a lady in waiting, which completely goes against, like uh, there was no chance at that time a lady in waiting would have been Asian, right? It would have been all all. Um, Caucasian people so it was and I remember when that happened it was a bit of a not a, contra- a bit of a controversy I suppose of saying like well can can they go into these movies even though it's not historically accurate and I think James Bond has an even less argument there because it's not real it's, it's a fictional character so you could literally make it whatever it is so I, I, I find that an interesting topic as well of like you know non- Caucasian actors taking on roles that are traditionally very Caucasian. You know, I'm not saying we need, you know, Queen of England to be to be an Asian woman, but I just, it's a, it's an interesting casting choice I think these days to make. Yeah, uh, I you know I I think that's a uh, some some great stuff. Um, before we go, I, I know it has nothing to do with the subject at hand, but I do want to mark the passing of Canadian icon Christopher Plummer, who, who tragically died at the age of 91. He's obviously most remembered for his role in white people movie Sound of Music. Um, but also <laughs> One of my favorite movies. I have to put it out there, though. I know it sounded like I passed it. It's not. And I was very, very like sad when I heard that he passed away because he's to me just he's a legend. He's absolutely yeah, Toronto and a Montreal legend. I know that Montreal, they hold him up really highly. Yeah, but he was also known for, for movies like Knives Out, Up, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and his three Oscar-nominated roles in, in The Last Station, All the Money in the World, and Beginners, which he won his only Oscar for. And while I never got to see him on stage, once when I was in Stratford, he was in the same audience as me uh, while I watched wow. Shane de Bergerac. So I, I cool. think that's pretty cool. <laughs> You're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> I have a confession to make. When I first emerged from my mother's womb, I was already rehearsing my Academy thank you speech. (laughs) But it was so long ago, mercifully for you, I've forgotten it. But I haven't forgotten who to thank. The Academy, of course, for this extraordinary honor. What a career he had. I mean, from starting at an era of, of... Like he's kind of one of the few that's in the last kind of golden age of Hollywood mm-hmm. era. And um, he had this really cool resurgence at what, 70 years old yeah. um, of people wanting him. But what a career he had. Is that what, and it was as sad as it is to say like, Oh, he passed away. Like a well, or sorry, a life well lived. Like he, he was truly contributed quite a bit to cinema and just, you know, the culture in general. Absolutely. Uh, well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your experiences and your expertise. I, I had an excellent time and, and you really taught me a lot. And if people want to find more of your work, what's the best way to follow you? 
Uh, you can go to my website, rachelkh.com, um, or you can get me on Twitter, which is underscore rachelkh. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, though, Dakota. It was really great fun talking about this. I'm really looking forward to your episode about uh, Japanese cinema. That's going to be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, a little teaser there. Uh, but stay tuned for next week when we preview the upcoming South by Southwest Film Festival. You can also follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod, and make sure to visit ContraZoomPod.com for all your CZP needs. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.